Good morning. Today we have two Bible verses. Our first is from Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zephadite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkahan, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tophu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Panahan. Panahan had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hapani and Phineas had two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Our second reading is from Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Thank you, Noel. Uh, well, welcome. Welcome again. Uh, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, it's okay. You're late. There's grace here. There's a lot of grace uh, here to be had in the church. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. My name is Jonathan, and it's a privilege to be starting a new sermon series uh, this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, please open it to 1 Samuel. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's some at the back. They're, they're right by that little plant near our sound desk. Uh, if you're really uh, into the digital stuff, then you can download uh, a Bible app. I'm sure there's many companies who would love to receive uh, your email address and give you the Bible for free. <laughs> um, but I want to welcome you here. Uh, welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. Happy New Year. Uh, today we're beginning this new series through the book of Samuel. And it's, it's uh, also a beginning of sorts for uh, our three brothers and sisters, uh, three of our church family here, Amante, Rachel, and Damien. And as they enter the water today, they're going to be undergoing baptism into the name of Jesus. Now, I confess, um, I don't quite understand the psychology behind this, but for whatever reason, a new year for many people, it carries a sense of optimism. Uh, and maybe you're feeling that way too. Maybe the new year for you is, is a time to sort of rethink things, do something different, and you're hopeful, you're optimistic that things are going to be different. Um, I suspect that for the people who were living in, in the land that uh, Noel was uh, reading about for us, um, their optimism was beginning to wane. It was beginning to, to run out altogether. <laughs> uh, we'll talk more on that in a moment, but what you and I need to remember this morning is that the message of the Christian faith is not mere optimism. So important that that lands for you. The message of the Christian faith is not mere optimism. The Christian gospel is a victory song. It's the proclamation of triumph. It's heaven's banner unfurled, confetti falling from the ceiling, trophies in the case, that sort of stuff. That's the message of Christianity. And so the worst thing that you could do today is to leave here thinking, wow, isn't it nice to be with a bunch of optimistic people? <laughs> if you're here long enough, you realize we're not always optimistic. <laughs> but more than that, 
if you leave here thinking, wow, they seem to really have found some inner motivation, some, some, some plan, some purpose, an outlook for the future, something that, that works for them, if, that, if that's the impression that you leave with today, then, then I don't think you've heard or witnessed what's going on properly. Um, it's not that elements of this thinking are untrue. You know, Christians ought to be optimistic. We ought to be motivated. We ought to have a sense of purpose. But the great mistake would be to leave here seeing a bunch of Christians and to not see Jesus. That's the big mistake. If you walk out of here today and you think it was great to be with a bunch of Christians, but you didn't see Jesus, you've missed the main event. You've missed the whole thing. Jesus Christ is the star. And Christ, it's not Jesus' surname, it's, it's his title, actually. And Christ, it means, and it's best understood as anointed one. So when we utter the name Jesus Christ, we are saying that Jesus is anointed. But he's not anointed as sort of one of many. He's anointed as one of one, really. He is God's anointed. He's the one upon whom God's favor truly, utterly, and finally rests. Which brings me to the book of 1 Samuel. Our new teaching series for this year through the book of 1 Samuel, um, we've themed it the Lord's anointed. And the reason we've done this is because by studying the book of Samuel, we hope to gain a clearer picture of what it means to be the Lord's anointed and what it means to know him. What does it mean to be the Lord's anointed and what does it mean to know him? Now we're going to come to the passage uh, in a little bit, but first I'd want to just take a few moments to introduce the series um, by asking two questions. The first question is, what, what's the relevant background features of this book? And the second question we want to answer this morning is, why is it relevant for us here at WDBC? So if you're journeying with us for a time, I hope you, you, you get a sense of what this is that we're reading. Uh, we don't open the Bible as some sort of magic book that we kind of encant and recite. Uh, we open it as truth, truth that is to be heard and truth that is to be lived. So what are the relevant features of this book? And then why is it relevant for us today? So Let's try to tackle that first question first. What are the uh, relevant features of this book? Well, you need to know that first uh, book, First Samuel, is it's a book of uh, that has two parts. Uh, it, it comes to us at the time of the judges period, and there's this discussion going on. And if you read the book, it kind of leaves you wondering: is this is this prophecy? Is it is it history? Is it is it drama? Uh, we know that. Elsewhere in scripture, Samuel is called a prophet, which makes this book part of the earliest prophetic literature that we have from God's people. Uh, we know that uh, the book begins in a time when there was no king ruling over God's people, and when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And at this time, both justice and worship were being corrupted by God's people. And so the, the community, they found themselves oppressed, marginalized, uh, failing to realize the blessings that God had promised to them. And in some ways, this book of Samuel is God's response to this marginalized, fledgling community. But if you read the book of Samuel, it does come across more like history than it does prophecy, than say Isaiah or Jeremiah, for instance. 
This is because the book of Samuel can be said to follow biographically the lives of uh, great men in Israel, the lives of Samuel and Saul and of David. And in doing so, Samuel, the book, traces the establishment of the kingship in Israel and the rise of the nation to prominence. We learn what led to the glories of King David and why he's celebrated by those people. And for this reason, as I said, some people see this book primarily as history. Uh, others see the book as, as a narrative discourse, perhaps on something like power or leadership. Uh, that's communicated through lives and through lessons of these key leaders, whether that's good or bad or otherwise. And such a view is possible only because if you zoom in closely to the story, you see a dramatic portrayal of these people. You get right up close to their story. You see their thoughts, their conversations, their, the most intimate parts of their lives. And so some might argue that the book of Samuel is primarily a story or a dramatic narrative with morals and lessons for us to draw. So is it a story? Is it prophecy? Is it, is it prophetic writing meant to reveal something from God and what he has to say about this time? I, I think it's fair to say that all three of those are, are in play. All three of those are uh, likely happening and none of them actually exclude the others. But I think this summary from V. Phillips Long uh, really says it well. This commentator, uh, Long, he writes, the, 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 the theological profundity of the book of Samuel has been an unmistakable draw to countless generations of readers. Through its finely wrought narr narrations of the lives and circumstances of its characters, the book, Samuel, establishes what we might call a kind of baseline theology. And he goes on to say, at the heart of the book, we find not just human protagonists and antagonists, but God himself. And so whether in the text God engages directly in the action or remains behind the scenes, the divine presence inevitably raises crucial theological questions. Ultimately, this, what does living in the world in relationship to one's creator look like? What a great question to ponder. What does it look like to live in the world with my creator? According to Long, this is what the book of Samuel is all about. And with that, we come to our second question. Why is this relevant? I, I think to borrow from Long and the quote that we just heard, the first reason is because, number one, it does uh, establish or set a baseline for our theology. It's always good to go back to our fundamentals and reestablish what this baseline is for what we believe about God. You know, sometimes we get so focused on our struggles or on our worries or on just our own agenda that we begin to shrink wrap God into this little convenient package size God that fits in your backpack or fits under the seat or in the glove box of your car. And this travel sized God actually won't do. <laughs> Theology is the study of God, and so your theology and my theology is who we understand God to be. It's not just what we want God to do for us. And so if you haven't actually lately revisited who God actually is, then this is a great opportunity actually in this book to remember what your creator is actually like. What is God like? Not, not what do I want him to be like, but what is he like? It's healthy for us here at WDBC to go back to our fundamentals as a church, to know God and to worship God. 
What a great place to start. If you finish this year, if you finish 2024 and say, you know what, I didn't do much, but I knew God and I worshiped him. That's a win. That's a win. The second reason this book is relevant for us is because it helps us to locate the favor of God. To find the blessing, the good path, the, the treasure in the field. You know, in our day, our chase for the good life, it often begins before we can even speak, doesn't it? Our accumulation of knowledge, it's brought us great technological advancement. We've become great storytellers. We've become really experts in, in media and communication. But unfortunately, none of these advancements have brought us any closer to the kind of peace or wholeness or security that human beings crave. And if you doubt me, just check the mental health stats. We've somehow become more connected with the world and yet more disconnected from one another. Am I right? Somehow our accumulation has led to more consumption and less contentment. Somehow having more options has made us more deviant and less developed, hasn't it? And somehow more knowledge has made us more worried and less wise. It's fair to say that humanity in our day isn't settled. We're striving, we're hustling, we're searching, but for what? The farthest we seem to have gotten in answering the question, that question is simply to say, the good life is searching and finding whatever you want. But is that really the answer? Peace, wholeness, contentment, is it the end of what you want? Whatever that may be. How's that going for you? The book of Samuel is going to challenge the assumption of our cultural moment that peace comes with having whatever our heart desires. It's going to push back against us and say that what matters most is having the Lord's anointing. I'm going to say that again. This book is going to push back against our cultural moment, which says that peace comes with having whatever our heart desires. And instead, it's going to say, it's going to shout, it's going to painfully remind us that peace comes with having and knowing the Lord's anointed. The anointing of the Lord is that place where love, strength, and righteousness meet. To be anointed means to share in God's favor, God's power, God's holiness. And so we need to study this book because amidst all the noise and the confusion that's going on, amidst all these competing voices that want to tell you what the good is, this book is going to highlight the path for us. It's going to light it up so that we can follow the anointing and we can find the good. The third reason that uh, this book is important for us to study is because it curbs our lust for power. It curbs our appetite for control. We're constantly being conditioned in our world to think that if we only had enough power, i.e. if we had enough equality, if we had enough opportunity, if we had enough money, if we had enough authority, if we had enough leverage, if we had a big enough reputation, if we had the right support, if we finally were able to cash that inheritance check, 
if the balance in our super fund or in our bank account finally hit that golden level, then we think <laughs> we can make life work. Surely then we would bring about the good. Then we would finally have freedom. Then we would be happy. We would be loved. Or as the song says, we would be heroes. If you think about it, we actually haven't grown up all that much from the kid standing in front of the mirror in his undies flexing, assured that all would be well if he could just be Superman. And I think perhaps the only thing that's really changed is the capes. The book of Samuel sees us reaching for the cape and it says, eh, not so fast. <laughs> Maybe what you need isn't more power. Maybe perhaps the power that you do have could be put to a better end. Which brings us to the fourth reason. The fourth reason the book of Samuel is relevant for us is because it helps us, it beckons us to savor the presence of Jesus. And it's going to beckon us or summon us, invite us in two ways. One is out of desperation and the other is out of delight. First, Samuel's going to beckon us out of desperation as we watch the failings of fallible people, especially powerful men. We're going to see that the tallest one in the room doesn't always make the, grace, the best leader. We're going to see that giant killers can also be murderers. That shepherds can be adulterers. And that kings don't exactly make great fathers. And that just because you're speaking for God doesn't mean that people are actually listening. By the time we finish this book, I think you'll be so desperate for Jesus because you yearn for the one who is faithful and the one who is true. You're going to yearn for the one who will rightly represent God to his people. The one who will truly, faithfully, represent people to their God and the one who will reign justly over his kingdom. You're going to yearn for the one who's going to build God's true temple so that God might dwell and be worshipped by his people. You're going to be beckoned to Jesus out of desperation. You can't read these pages. You won't be able to read this story without hearing the creaking of the fragility of humanity. And you're going to yearn for the unbreakable one. You're going to yearn for the one who is called in the book of Revelation faithful and true. But this book is also going to beckon you to Jesus, not just out of desperation. It's going to beckon you to Jesus out of delight. Out of delight, because you want to. As I said before, the anointing of the Lord is a place where the love, the strength, the holiness of God, it's where these converge. And, and when you find that place and you find that person, it's a glorious place. It's a place of rest and it's a place of peace. You see, it's one thing for the anointing of God to rest even for a time on a sinful human being. It's entirely another thing for the anointing of God to rest upon his one and only son, to rest upon Jesus, the sinless son of man. When we behold that anointing, when we behold that anointed one, we are forever changed. You could say we're beckoned by his beauty. The book of Samuel pulls us close to Jesus like that wafting aroma of our favorite meal. As suddenly as we might find ourselves standing in the kitchen, 
naturally and mysteriously, we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus. I didn't necessarily think I would be here, but the smell was so sweet. The music was so beautiful. I was captivated by his glory. And so ultimately, we, we study this book so that we can savor Jesus, so that we can be brought in to the presence of God in worship. The prophet Isaiah foresaw this. In Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3, the prophet writes to the people of Israel, the people of God, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. He's saying, wake up. Get up. There's glory to be seen. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. Verse 2, see darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you. Do you see what he did there? Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Verse 4, lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you, your sons and daughters from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and will swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you and the riches of the nations will come. Why? Because the Lord rises upon them. Because the glory of the Lord's anointed is revealed. That's why we're going to study this book. We want to set a baseline for our theology. We want to locate the favor of God. We want to know what the good is and where to get it. We need to curb our lust for power and somehow stem our appetite for control. But ultimately, we're studying this book so collectively as a church, we can learn to savor the presence of Christ. Amen. And with that, I invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, Jesus is so good. We've only tasted. And Father, as we open this book, as we begin ever so slightly this morning, I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. In the secret place, in the hidden place, that you remove from our eyes the blinders that we put up or that the world puts up or that our pain or our grief has, has put in front of our eyes so that we might see your glory in the face of your Son, our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We come now to uh, the message this morning, which, again, it's just a taste. This is literally just scene setting. If you go to a theater or you go to, you, you, you go to a play, you walk in and you see how the stage has been set up. That's all we're going to do today. The actors aren't going to walk onto the stage, really. They're not going to, you're not going to watch people moving around. You're just going to walk in and you're going to see the backdrop. You're going to see the set. And that's all I hope you see this morning. I want you to see the set. And if you look on that set, it would not be a set of hope. It would be a set of hopelessness. And so this message is titled, Out of Barrenness. 
Living this side of the cross, we understand that the light that Isaiah saw has already dawned in the coming of Jesus Christ. We've seen his glory. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've, you've said, yes, he is the light. He's the true light. And we're living in the fulfillment of that passage. If you think about it, it goes on to talk about the islands coming. We're on one of the biggest islands in the world right now. <laughs> here in Australia, gathering this morning to worship Jesus, coming to honor the Lord our God, the Holy One of Israel. So we've seen this light, but this wasn't the case yet for the people who were living in the times of Samuel or the times of the judges. And so with what remains of our time today, we're going to look very briefly at three verses from 1 Samuel chapter 1. And although these are few, these verses give us enough context to set the backdrop really for the whole book. I'll read them for you. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, Jeroham, sorry, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. This is like that little blurb you read on the back of the playbill. <laughs> this is the setting of the opening scene. And you might be surprised, I, I'm surprised, frankly, to find that this book, which is going to go on to describe the rise and fall of dynasties in Israel, begins with a common family story. It's about a family that's going to church or going to the temple. As the curtain rises on the riveting drama of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to a certain man and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Now, Hannah was likely the first wife. We know this because she's mentioned first. And we know that uh, this man was a man of some prominence. He's called a certain man. And likely his ability to afford to provide for a second wife who was able to bear him children is likely an indication that he was a man of some means. But this morning we're going to see that this opening is not the author's attempt to be quaint. It's not some splash of color on a simple backstory. Instead, much as in our day, this family represents the nation. As goes the family, so goes the nation. And so this certain man and his family, they sketch a profile of life in Israel. And unfortunately, the opening scene is one of pain and of grief. It's one of barrenness and rivalry. It's one of provocation and cruelty. Now, we may react to the opening words of this story in different ways, depending on your outlook or your philosophy on life or your own experience, particularly if you've had experience with infertility or miscarriage or any sort of struggle to... Uh, bring children into the world. Many may regard Hannah's barrenness as a medical misfortune or perhaps more coldly as simply a mathematical eventuality that was bound to occur for some people. But for an Israelite who believed the promises of God, for an Israelite who makes it a point to worship every year, the barren womb was a harbinger of God's displeasure with his people. It was a sign. It was an omen, if you will. You say, Jonathan, you're reading a bit too much into this woman's barrenness. 
Well, perhaps, if not for what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says this, Take care to follow the commands, the decrees, and the laws that I give you. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant with you as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land he swore to give to your ancestors. And then you come to verse 14. You will be more blessed than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor will any livestock be without young. That's what God said. If you read on in the book of Deuteronomy, you read later in chapter 27 about the consequences if the people are not faithful to God, if they do not listen to his command, if they do not enact his word. God said to them in Deuteronomy 27:43, the foreigners who reside among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head, you will be the tail. All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. And he goes on and on. This was the covenant that God made with the people of Israel in the desert of Sinai after he brought them out of Egypt. Do you, do you see what's going on here? You see, if you're a part of this little worshiping family, if you're Elkanah or Hannah or, or, or Penina, what would you conclude? You would probably conclude as a collective people that you're not experiencing the blessing of the Lord. That you're in Deuteronomy 27, you're not in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And yet they worshiped. Every year they worshiped, we're told in verse 3. Every year they made the trip to Shiloh, the place where the tabernacle that Moses had built was set up in the promised land. Every year they selected the sacrifice. Every year they packed up the family and the belongings. Every year they went to worship Yahweh. Every year they prayed. Every year they sacrificed. Every year they waited in hope. Every year they returned disappointed. And yet every year they worshiped. And this brings us to our big question for today, which is, how do we worship? You see, in a manner of speaking, and I credit Walter Brueggemann for this insight. I think he's right on the money here. In a manner of speaking, Hannah is a microcosm of Israel. She's a representative type of God's people at this time. And so just as her womb was barren and lifeless, so the nation was barren and lifeless. There was no hope for the next generation. There was no hope for a future. There was no, nothing to be excited about, nothing, nothing to look forward to. They're, they're looking at a dead end. 
And as God predicted what happened to them, their neighbors, especially the Philistines, they were gaining superiority over them. And, and if you read the book prior to this, the book of Judges, you, you, you see this cycle that just gets worse and worse and worse. The cycle is that people would be unfaithful to the Lord, and so God would give them over to their oppressors because that's what he said would be what happened when they were unfaithful. And then God would hear them cry for mercy and he would raise up a judge or a deliverer, someone like Samson, who would rescue them from their oppressors. But then the problem is the cycle of rebellion would start all over again. If you want to get a real sense of how corrupt things had become among the nation, just go ahead and read the last few chapters of the book of Judges this week. I encourage you to do it, not at your family devotions. It'd be rated M.A. or even R. But I think here, the author of Samuel sees a point of comparison. And if we read what happens in Judges 17 and what happens in 1 Samuel 1, then we're going to come across a point of contrast between two worshipers. And I suggest to you that this comparison sparks a glimmer of hope for those who are waiting in a barren land. And it ought to give you hope as well if you're someone who feels like you're in a season of lifelessness. Judges chapter 17, which again is, is writing about the same time period. We read these words, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Literally they did what was right in their own eyes. You could go to the self-help section of your local library or go to Dimmick's and pick out in the self-help title. You'll find a lot of things that basically say, as long as it works for you, you got to find what works for you. You got to do you. This is what's going on. The problem is, as everyone's doing what seems right to them, the nation is crumbling at the core. And what follows right after this verse, in the next few verses, literally, this is what comes right next. You're going to see it in a second. is a description of another worshiper, someone else who's worshiping. And, and I want to, it's worth showing to you here. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah who'd been living with the clan of Judah left that town in search of some other place to stay. And on his way, he came to Micah's house in the country of Ephraim. Same location where Elkanah's from. He's living in the hill country of Ephraim. This young Levite comes and... Sorry, I'm a bit behind on the slide. The Levite comes and Micah asks him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. He said, I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Oops. So what's the point, you may ask? <laughs> Now, if you didn't catch the details, we have a picture for us of two men living about the same time from generally the same area who are both going about their worship of Yahweh, who are both looking for favor from God. What's the difference? The man in Judges is doing the exact opposite of what God has asked. 
God said, everyone is to worship me in one place. God said, the Levites are my priests. But this man has hired for himself a priest to live with him. He set up a shrine in his house and he's effectively taken ownership of this Levite. This priest with the idea that now God's going to have to bless him. You know, in a way, he, he sort of represents the approach that a lot of people take today to seeking God. He thinks that he can, through his own means, finagle his way into God's blessing. His assumption is that as long as he calls by God by the right name, as, <laughs> as long as his prayers are pointed in the right direction, as long as he has the right trinkets, around him, he can somehow unlock God's goodness for himself. And best of all, he gets to worship right where he is, from the comfort of his own lounge room, in his own home. You know, we can read this on one level and say, this is a great arrangement. It's like church without the people, right? It's really convenient. The priest does the ceremony. He does the God stuff. He says a few words. He does a few rituals. He pronounces a blessing and Bob's your uncle. The blessing is sorted. But this man, this worshiper, I suggest to you, he has a fee for service faith. A fee for service faith. Was God happy with this? <laughs> You know, if we didn't know better, we might be tempted to think, what's the harm? I mean, after all, he's investing his own money, his own time, and his religion, isn't he? He's paying the wage of a ministry worker. He's giving a man food and clothes. Surely his faith is personal because look how invested he is. We, we, we might be tempted to look at it that way and say, this guy's figured something out. The problem is we do know better, and we know that God was not happy with this arrangement. God doesn't want his people worshiping wherever they chose. He called them to worship him where he chose. And the Levites were not for hire because they belonged to God. I could go on and on, but you get the point. Feel free to fact check me after the message. But this, this is in Judges 17 as an illustration of the point of Judges 17.6, which is with no king and no authority, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It made sense to this guy, and this is what he did. Now, by contrast, Elkanah in 1 Samuel, again, roots in the same town, living in the same general region, he makes a point of worshiping God at his tabernacle. His religion is not a religion of convenience. It's not a negotiating, tit-for-tat, God, you have to do this now to bless me sort of faith. It's a raw, it's a robust, dare I say, it's a barren faith. Here's a man worshiping Yahweh because Yahweh is worthy, not for what Yahweh can give him. How do I know? Because year after year, he keeps worshiping, even out of disappointment, even out of barrenness. As the chapter unfolds, and we'll see this next week, we will see a woman, Hannah, who is worshiping out of her literal barrenness. We're going to see that it's not easy. We're going to see that it's not convenient. In fact, the people around her, even this man, her husband, to everyone around her, her faith is literally incomprehensible. They, 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 they're misunderstanding her. But that's a story for another day. 
What you need to know today is that God is to be worshipped in the way he chooses. We're not to come how he wants, how we want, excuse me, but how he commands. It was true then and it's true now. In fact, one of the driving tensions of the whole Bible is how can sinful men and women, how can sinful people truly worship before a holy God? Maybe this is a tension you felt yourself. Maybe in your, your heart, the Spirit of God whispers to you that God is bigger than you thought he was. <laughs> Maybe the Spirit is telling you that he is holier than you can comprehend. And maybe the Spirit of God is saying that He and He alone is the one who will determine your future. But the bad news is that we, in ourselves, cannot worship God as He deserves or as He demands. We can't come how we want, and on our own, we really can't truly come at all. But the good news is that God made another way for us to come, and that is through Jesus. We can come to him through Jesus Christ, God's anointed. As Jesus himself said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, this is how we worship God. Through Jesus, in Jesus, because of Jesus. But maybe there's one more question that we need to answer, which is, why would we worship? It seems to be an undeniable truth of our existence that we will worship what we love most. We will worship what we love most. So why would we love God most? Tim Keller has great insight, and he's building off the work of others on this as well. But if you listen to Tim Keller, you'll hear him say things like, the only way that your heart is going to be captivated by God is until you see him as more lovely and as more beautiful than whatever captivated your heart before. Until you find in him a truer beauty, a truer glory, a truer goodness than whatever thing you're relying on, the thing that you see ultimate goodness in right now that is not him. Until that happens, you're not going to worship. Which brings us to a great opportunity this morning. You see, our God is gracious and his gifts are abundant. I don't want you to get the picture here that God is a miser. He withholds no good thing from us and is... Surely not a miser when it comes to his provision. Every good and perfect gift, we're told, comes from him. And yet, is not his glory greatest? Tell me if I'm wrong. Is not his glory greatest seen? Isn't his beauty the brightest when his people worship him out of their barrenness? It's when the widow drops her two mites in the temple treasury. It's when we look down and see the alabaster jar containing all the, the most prized possession of a humble woman. When we see it broken at the feet of Jesus. It's, it's when only the crumbs are left from the master's table. It's when Job, who's covered in sores and ash, having received messenger of doom after messenger of doom, finally cries out to his wife, though he slay me, yet will I worship him. 
It's when Paul, stoned within an inch of his life, his limp body dragged outside the city as though dead, gets up and walks back into Lystra. It's when Jesus, hungry from fasting 40 days in the wilderness, says to the tempter, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. It's when Jesus, betrayed and sorrowing, sweating drops of blood in a garden, says, nevertheless, God, not my will, but your will be done. It's when Jesus, arms spread out on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And into your hands I commit my spirit. It's when we look there, when we see people worship out of their barrenness, out of their emptiness, out of their nothingness, we see the beauty of God. We see the glory of God. Jesus is lovely. The good news is that this God who brings life from barrenness is still bringing new life today. In Jesus, hope springs eternal. Dead wombs are revived by an empty tomb. And the love of God has truly come. The problem is if we come to worship this God like the man in Judges, the first man, we're never going to worship God out of barrenness because if you come to God like that, you're never going to yield. You're never going to be emptied. You're never going to surrender because you think you're not going to be able to afford to because at the end of the day, you're still worshiping yourself, still worshiping what you want. Such a man doesn't know that God loves him because he's never actually had to rely on the love of God. The invitation today is to hold on to hope. If you're in a season of dryness or barrenness, the invitation is to hold fast and worship. If you're struggling to do that today, I invite you to see Christ in the testimony of these Christians. I invite you to see the beauty and the glory of the one they've given their lives to worship. If you leave today and you don't see Jesus, you've missed the main event. Let's pray. Father, would you help us today to behold you in your beauty and power and glory? In Christ's name, we ask. Amen.